Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiya, I'm Christina from Tamaki Makoto, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and you're listening to Dan Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, what is something that you thought you knew but had utterly wrong? Okie dokie, here comes the show. And remember, question everything. Hello everybody and welcome to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything. It's a podcast where myself, comedian, writer and occasional actor, Dane Baptiste, and my producer friend, Howard Cohen, aka The Hizza. Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose to questions that need to be asked. And we are talking everything from... We are talking everything from Christina from New Zealand. Hello to New Zealand's question. What Hello, is something? Yeah, that's why way away. Uh, what is something you thought you knew that you had utterly wrong? Um, oh my God, so many things. <laughs> I feel like maturity to me is knowing that I don't know shit. So um, I'd say thinking something that stands out is uh, well, I thought Pluto was a planet. <laughs> that's a good one I, I was pretty sure Pluto was a planet because that's what they told me in school but if I went in there now I'd be laughed at um, yeah. so that's one I also thought that Shakespeare died on his birthday right um, yeah I also that's, thought that's that, a good one also for your vote counted in a bipartisan democracy too so <laughs> many things Christina many yeah, things yeah this is a great <laughs> question have you got one? Uh, do you know what I think I think there's so there's so few that spring to mind I guess I've just been right for most of my life (laughs) Um, (laughs) but suffice to say on this podcast Christina and everyone we ask and answer all the questions don't we Dave absolutely no question is too big too small too highbrow too silly or dumb and if you do like the show please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and you'll never miss an episode or subscribe to us on Acast the world's biggest podcast network where you can hear all the very special questions being asked and answered by our very special guests with that being said on today's show is a writer activist and creative she is a weekly radio show on lbc and regularly writes for a number of publications including the guardian the independent and grazia magazine her mind manual a beginner's guide to being mental and a to z was published in may 2018 followed by yes you can a show exams without losing your mind in 2015 she was awarded an mbe for her services to young people she is a founder of the mental health media charter which scrutinizes the way the media report on mental health and generally is constantly fighting the good fight so please welcome to the show miss natasha devon thank you so much i love that introduction oh thank you we, we are we are both a podcast and a spiritual florist we like to give people flowers while they're here <laughs> pedestalize them as much as we can and have them leaving knowing that they're thoughts and opinions and questions are valued so thank you natasha natasha is there something you thought you knew that you had utterly wrong loads of stuff but while we're on this i recently read a really good book by do you know otto english you know that guy who writes for the byline times he wrote a book called fake history and every chapter is things that people believe are true 
that are actually not true. And then he will extrapolate from that point. So one of them is um, the idea that curry is from India, for example. That's right. actually, you know, not true. And but then he explores a, a lot more uh, throughout the course and, and almost everything in that book. <laughs> Where is curry from, Natasha Devon? It, it's from, so the there's this, myth that um an englishman went into an indian restaurant and they served him because curry curried meat is very dry in mm -hmm. in india that's how they have it they served him the dry meat he said i'm not having this they took it back to the chef and the chef added a tin of tomato soup and that's how the the curry as we <laughs> understand it was, was born that, that um, doesn't sound very likely <laughs> yeah, not true. It turns out. Uh, it turns out that um, curry was already a thing in Britain, mm -hmm. and you can you can go back really far through history, and you can see sort of curried dishes. And then when Indian and Pakistani people came over and started up businesses, they meshed what they knew with the cuisine of England, and then that right. became the kind of tikka masala and all the dishes that don't exist in, in India. Yeah, they one, don't exist in India. I, I didn't get that version of history. My, uh, my friend was like, masala and korma and rogan, Josh, that's for goddess, mate. And gora <laughs> is a variety term for Western Europeans, we'll I say. I definitely think that uh, there's no story in history where things were improved by pouring a can of tomato soup over it. Uh, <laughs> apart from that one scene in Goodfellas when they're in the prison <laughs> and he's like, don't put too many onions in the sauce. I'm not putting too many onions in. Yeah, but that, that's just that's just tom chopped tomatoes. That's not like Heinz tomato soup, right? That's like that's just too. That's Although just crazy. it does sound like the true the story of how crisps were invented. So huh? a guy went with ordered some yeah. potatoes. He didn't think they were sliced thin enough, and there's a, a black chef in the back, and he was like, "I want them thinner." And the guy was like, "They can't go any thinner." And he was like, uh, "It's Jim Crow, so you'll do as you're told." And he was like, "Fine, I'll make them thin as a crisp." And then the guy was like. These are delicious. And that's how potato chips were invented. Wow. Well, also, my, my friend and I came up with what we think might be a really good TV show idea. And if you agree, you can have this for free. Great, great. So where do you stand on jollof rice? Would you have Nigerian jollof rice or Ghanaian? Well, to be honest, Natasha, um, what I've heard is that jollof rice, well, where do I stand on it? It's, I mean, oh God, you put me in a really tight spot here. <laughs> Is this uh, your question, by the way? For the week? <laughs> <laughs> yes, my oh, question. My, yeah. oh my God. Um, don't make me choose, please. I just want everyone to get along. Yeah. Um, the last, the last jollof I had was Nigerian. So I'll go with that one. Okay. Um, because we, we were, I, I was listening to, you know, the off menu podcast mm -hmm. and, um, they they had on their um what is her name that's really annoying sophie duca yeah oh yeah um uh, yeah and she she's Ghanaian of Ghanaian mm -hmm. heritage so she was saying that nigerian jollof rice was stupid so i recorded that bit <laughs> so she yeah. sent, it to, sent it to uh my friend and so we've come up with this tv idea which is the great west african jollof off jollof off yeah yeah yeah, nice. I'd my, watch it. My, my idea was Master Spliff. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Master Spliff would definitely work as well. Well, I'm making notes of all of these for yeah, my producer, producer, for my job. Laying yeah, golden eggs for you, buddy. <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. Also, strictly I'll lap see dancing. you in court for the rights. Um, <laughs> I think strictly lap dancing in association with OnlyFans, <laughs> and I feel like I might sell that to Babe Station, and I will make, <laughs> which I will reinvest into. Yeah. 
uh, altruistic causes for women as well, Natasha. So don't you even worry about it. Like I'll be. I mean, that's feminism, right? I mean, yeah, the right to choose and to not have your um, life predisposed by your gender. So I feel like you could do that, and um, I mean, I'm definitely, I'm definitely up for that because you know. You know what? It's probably time for a question, isn't it, Dane? As the uh, (laughs) as the format of this show dictates, even though we could just keep talking TV ideas, which would be fun. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And as our very esteemed guest, we invite you to ask the first question on the podcast. It can be any question you'd like, which we'd like to discuss for about fifteen minutes. Then Howard would like to pose a question that we'd like to discuss for around the same amount of time. And then a surprising twist of fate, I would like to ask you a question that we asked for discuss for like fifteen minutes. And afterwards, then I would like for you to tell our listeners where they can find out about your previous, uh, present and future good works. How does that sound? Fantastic. And I, I thought of so many questions that I wanted to ask you to, but I think I've narrowed it down to the best one. And it is this period in time that we're living in right now. Do you feel like it's the end of something or the beginning of something? And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. I heard a really optimistic take on the epic division that we're experiencing at the moment over things like Brexit and COVID. Someone was saying it's the dying gasps of the British Empire. It's the last ditch attempt of mm-hmm. a, a certain demographic to, to hold on to, to the power that they've had for so long. Mm-hmm. But then I've also heard people say, you know, because of the internet and the way that it's polarizing everyone, this is actually the start of how humanity is going to be from now on. So I wonder which one you think is the most likely. A sensational question. Sensational question. I love I it. Had no doubt, Natasha, that you'd come with, yeah, come, with, come, is... come, come, come with the wickedness as the children said in like 1997. I think I, I think my instant reaction, Dane, is to see if you agree, is is, is that is that a bit of one and a bit of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that it's the end of is probably clearer than what it's the beginning of. Is that is that a fair point, maybe, Dane? Yeah, oh, uh, definitely. I guess it's, it, especially in terms of the clear depiction of what's to come, it's very difficult because there's no precedent for it. But I think we are coming to the end of a number of systems that have governed our way of being, uh, both in the Western and on a global scale. And as you said, I think, and the analogy I use a lot of the time is that when you begin to corner a beast that's in danger, that's when they become the most savage. And, you know, I guess that's a good uh, metaphor to describe um, Western imperialism as it begins to wane in power and influence on the global scale. Um, I feel a lot of this, myself personally, I feel a lot of the division that we are seeing, particularly online and within our society, is very much engineered. I think there is a commercial interest in having us fighting amongst ourselves, and it's been an age-old Machiavellian tactic to divide and conquer. Um, Myself, personally, I theorise this has begun in earnest sometime around 2008, after the credit crunch, when the uh, banking industry collapsed our economy. Um, I think when you hear from whistleblowers that uh, finance institutions have invested significant amounts of money into uh, data collection, and companies like Cambridge Analytica. And I feel like they have engineered the divide because as we've now regressed to having discussions, archaic discussions about humanity, whether it's like gender politics or, you know, uh, trans rights, uh, racial relations, I think that we seem to have gone backwards. And I think it's because collectively, if we were to maybe have discourse based on what unites us, what would be one of the definitely uniting narratives would be the fact that something as simple as 
owning a home or having access to universal health care or knowing that your water is clean and not being polluted or being a woman and having access to feminine hygiene products in school or in a place of business. Or equality. <laughs> yeah, just, just basic equality, you know, would, uh, I think that uh, would usually be discuss- is a discussion that we would be having. Instead, we are so focused on the one dimension of our being, which is like how we are perceived on the superficial level. And so, yeah, I think It's that, a great answer. Uh, attach- so we're getting get to the end, and I think someone's, well, someone is trying to stall the end of this age mm. because yeah. based on the fact that they uh, earn a lot of money from it. So, yeah. Sorry, how are you saying? I was just going to ask Natasha if that, if that resonates with her, what you what Dane's just said. Yeah, it definitely does. And I think what's really interesting from my point of view is my day job in, involves going into schools and colleges. I, w- I work with 14 to 18 year olds and there is such a massive gulf in the way that young people see the world as compared to how their their parents do. And sometimes when I tell them, is it strange having kind of one foot in education and one foot in the media? So sometimes when I tell them the kinds of things that will we will have discussed on my LBC show, for example. So mm. I'll, I'll say, oh, you know, some people say that the when they toppled the Colston statue that they were trying to destroy British history and they'll just be like what sorry what they said what Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they just can't understand where that narrative has come from it just seems ridiculous to them and that to me because because I know that progress is not a linear process and it's often a case of one step forward and two steps back but for me it really does feel like we're on the cusp of something um and so it's it, and but I do think that there's something in what what Dane said of the the more you corner an animal, the the fiercer it fights, and mm. and it seems to me more than ever that this kind of attempt to to divide us seem seem to me more transparent. Yeah, it's a really it, interesting I mean, it, it, way of looking. I mean, it. because and it's because of things that uh, there are people that are very. Yeah, I don't, and you know, even when you hear like you know the narratives from right wing then it's kind of like you, your situation is no longer tenable. And I think a lot of people can't come to terms with that, not because necessarily they're uh, just because of inertia and they refuse to do it. They're not aware of anything else. Mm. When you hear people speak about the, uh, when, in terms of in support of like global or uh, raw capitalism, I believe a lot of the time they're speaking from the perspective that they're not aware of another system. And so if you have been, and because this has been the prevailing uh, economic system for the last maybe four or five centuries, of course, no one would, who's alive or anyone who has recorded memory or anecdotal memory would be able to think of an alternative or be able to suggest a time where we had a more egalitarian state. It's like a lot of the time people talk about the erosion or the erasure of free speech. It's like, that's only, not everyone's had free speech, to be fair. You know, if you were someone like apartheid ended in 1997, like that's like when Tupac was still alive and Kurt Cobain was still alive. It's not like that long ago. So you would have had the majority, which Mm. how democracy is described or articulated to us would have been denied freedom of speech, freedom of political assembly, uh, freedom to marry and and basic civil rights. You know, indigenous Australians were considered fauna until around 94, I think it was. Or maybe later than maybe a few years after that, but again, this is at the twentieth century. I think that's partly because the older generations. I think I've said this a couple of times in the past year, Dane, about how like the people that survived the World War Two were like 
oh god we really fucking nailed it haven't we <laughs> you know we we really like we won and now let's just and, and anyone who kind of because of the, the 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 burden of surviving what was a horrific period of history on many levels for many different groups of people whether they knew they potentially were privileged at the time or not it still was an incredibly difficult time in history i think there's this kind of sh- shadow not just in the UK, by the way. It had, it had a massive impact on other lots of different countries. And you just think, God, the the burden of that, of that, that kind of baggage, of that, of that kind of you know mental health um, kind of you know nobody would ever have thought. God, the the, the, the impact World War Two's had on my mental health has been really, <laughs> you know, you never. But unless you were in the battles, nobody would ever have said that. But like with this pandemic, I think it's affected everyone's mental health, and and you know I think World War Two did that, and so now we end up in this scenario where you know we realise that hey guys, you well done for you know surviving World War Two and winning and everything. You didn't solve everything. We're going to let you know that from 2022. Well, I guess uh, the question, I mean, but that's because the, for me, the existential question would be, who wins a world war? Because we all live here. <laughs> yeah. Do, do, do you remember, see what I mean, Howard? Because yeah. a long time ago, when you, when you yeah, like I said, it's someone that would have been actively involved in a conflict of that scale, just to survive and to try and process that trauma itself would have been a massive achievement. But then mm. I would argue by that same token, you know, it takes... Unfortunately, it took something of that scale, you know, for people yeah. to realize like the value of human life. That's why, as a result of that, we had a universal healthcare system in the UK because mm. people are like, we have people that have sacrificed our lives. Our families have been devastated by this event. There is no way these people are coming back the fuck home and not being able to get access to healthcare. Now you fast forward and their successive generations now don't have access to healthcare, even if they do serve in the military. Yeah, so, you know. I tell you I what, no, I, I do often think about this, Natasha. And I'm not sure if this, you know, you get a lot of calls <laughs> from people generally, but also on that two hours you do of a show <laughs> on LBC. Um, but like, it's so interesting. I think this time in history to look across the spectrum, whether you're left wing, right wing, in the middle, or just kind of meandering between both, it's very easy for people to point out what's wrong. Like people are really good at this point in history about saying what they don't like and what they think's wrong. And mm. yet there seems to be most of the time a total lack of progression for what to do with that complaint, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, I imagine you must experience that a lot, Natasha. <laughs> yeah. And and another thing that occurs to me as both of you were talking is, and and again, I, I encountered this attitude a lot of, why did I make sacrifices if the world is going to change? And and th- those aren't the rules I learn. And it makes me think of that. There's a, a friend of mine called uh, Stephanie Yeboa, who's a, she's an influencer, and she's a a, a fat, dark skinned black woman. Mm-hmm. And so for for all kinds of reasons, people cannot deal with the fact that she's an influencer. She's made a success out of something that so many millions of people want to do. And so a lot of the hatred that I see directed towards her, I think it's actually people going, those aren't the rules I learned. I didn't mm-hmm. think that somebody who looks like this and is this could achieve success in the world that we live in. Why have I been adhering to those rules if you can make it through and I think that's some of the the reticence to embrace progress is about oh no you know I've spent 50 years of my life living by this set of rules why did I do that well that 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 comparative uh resentment is I think is uh yeah pervades all of society because I think a lot of people quite reluctantly conform to a system and do so because of you know that can be done because of some misguided idea about you know 
political identity or it can be about uh, patriotism or like jing- like there's a number of reasons and so when they see someone who defies that especially when they have no proceeding knowledge of anything different they're like like you said it's like well i did it by the book and it didn't work for me how come that person's able to realize their potential but when i was told and that's the thing is that you know i guess if people were to continue to ask themselves that as existential question they'd probably be a lot more comfortable with what's to come because in terms of what we talk about the future i think we are seeing the birth of a new state of being where we are now sharing our existence alongside artificial intelligence and it's quite a it's quite an interesting thing to observe so for example you know, the rise of like QAnon, for example, you know, people like, is this the beginning of crazies? I would argue not necessarily. You just have people who maybe historically would have been members of cults or splinter groups who are now able to engage in this performative dissidence online, which is further enabled by artificial intelligence in that if people want to entertain a particular conspiracy theory, they will be served with the same thing. And um, I, did, I did an Edinburgh show about uh, four or five years ago called uh, <clears throat> Reasonable Doubts. And I was talking about the fact that uh, if I ask, hey, Google or Alexa or Siri a question, I always punctuate it with please and thank you. Because when they take over, I want them to remember <laughs> that I was polite to them. Because <laughs> they're going to, because, you know, for many years, human beings, our, well, our minds have been the gatekeeper to our innermost desires. And... You know, we present a veneer of who we want people to think we are and we kind of are forward-facing with our outward persona. And yet, for the last decade, we've been giving this away freely to uh, social media or digital media and artificial intelligence, and we've been telling it all our secrets. What's also been happening at the same time is that human beings are experiencing two things that they thought they understood, but they didn't really, which has been enabled by artificial intelligence, which is democracy true democracy, Mm. and um, I say godhood. You know, for all of our adherents and the fact that our society is predicated on Judeo-Christian belief in terms of law and morality, we are now, with social media, able to know what it's like to be a god in that. You can know everything that's happened in the world at once. You can know where everybody is in the world at once. So you have omnipotence, you have omnipresence, because you can be there and be involved in any kind of narrative anywhere in the world. And we're not handling it very well. And maybe because <laughs> and maybe because we don't have the capacity to do so. Because when yeah. you think about it, if you think about when you're, you know, you have a, 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 a phone in show on LBC, plus you have access to social media, that means, you know, you can know more things than you could ever know, have that literally at your fingertips, and you can also read people's minds. In that, you can find out what someone thinks about you in a way that they would never normally say to you because of normal human etiquette, but because they can hide behind anonymity, they can say the most horrible, disparaging, threatening things to you. When you consider all of these things that people can reveal their true selves and you can see what they're doing, if you were a god and these people were asking you to do stuff for them in the form of prayers, would you fucking listen? (laughs) (laughs) Would you listen? listen? If you see how these people speak and think when they think that no one knows who they are, when they can reveal the most darker recesses of their minds and their souls because they have the gift of anonymity because we can't read minds in real life, so with artificial intelligence they can tell us, Knowing how human beings really think, doesn't it make it harder for you to like humanity? (laughs) It does. Uh, And also, we experienced what should have been utopia. This idea that we all have a voice and that all opinions are equal. That it should be a really democratic idea. And yet somehow it's 
it's not only kind of eroded the the, the fabric of justice. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it's like we were given utopia and we messed it up. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? (laughs) (laughs) Remember that story? So it really brings around exactly what you said. Mm. We are seeing the end of that life from from Genesis up until this point. Mm. God makes man, man becomes aware of his godhood or conscious and then fucks over God. Then you fast forward now, man makes artificial intelligence and then artificial intelligence lets us know what we're all thinking about each other everywhere in the world. So we couldn't hate each other more. We've told them all our secrets. How long do you think it's going to be when we're like, a man's a man and a woman's a woman. And meanwhile, artificial intelligence is like, well, we don't have any genders, any race, any religions, just zeros and ones. And we talk to each other all the time, just fine. How long before they're like, you know who can't get it together? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been a, what a great question that is, Natasha. Honestly, Dane, what, what, a, what a killer question. Wonderful right? question. A great, and a great way to start the first episode of the new year. Yeah. I'm going to ask a question that's, that's kind of not probably kind of, you know, a million miles off what we've just talked about, but I just kind of can't help but look at the feelings we have starting a new year. Uh, and I think there's some negative feelings that come out of starting a new year in quite a lot of people. Um, you know, their lives might not be everything they want it to be, but also I think the world isn't everything they want it to be, which Mm. made me think about how do we fight apathy? Uh, I imagine there's a lot of people who call you on LBC who are, uh, feeling like they can't make any difference to the world and apathy envelops them. I don't know. What do you think, Natasha? That is such a good question because I think that that's probably the greatest danger because I, you've got to find a middle ground, haven't you? There's, there is evidence to show that the more information we are exposed to, the more we kind of cleave to a simple narrative because it's comforting, because knowing too much is overwhelming and we're we're taking in more information than our brains have evolved to to deal with. So, So that's not a great response to the times that we're living in. But neither is, I think, going, well, we can never really know the truth um, because there's so many conflicting theories out there. No one can truly know. Therefore, I opt out. I think that's also really dangerous. And so it's it's occupying that middle ground that is so difficult. Uh, something that I find a really useful exercise is to think about everything that's causing me anxiety and divide it into the controllables and the uncontrollables and hmm. try and focus on the things that I can control because then you get your, your sense of agency and... Um, being important within your community, I guess, what, what, whatever that looks like. So I think that's, that's a good starting point, looking at what you can realistically control and, and trying to do something that makes the world a better place every day, even if it, that's in a, in a very small way. Mm. Do you feel a lot of apathy about the, the current situations we find ourselves in in the world? 
No, um, because I have always Good. had, um, ever since I was a little girl, what my parents call um, a really overdeveloped sense of fairness. Um, and, and not in a teenage way, um, but just in a kind of, oh, it's so unfair. But in a really like... A, you as, know, a, when as, I, as a child, just thinking very independently and critically, like, why are people homeless? That person yes. should... Yeah. And yeah. Then parents go, just come along. You're like, no, but why? Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. I, I totally get that. I totally get that. Uh... And I would, and I used to cry about things like you, you know, like in the guy from the Green Mile. I just used to, to be like, the world is too full of sadness. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I I've always had that element of my character, and and it makes and the way that it manifests is, is in anger, and um, I think anger can be a really positive emotion actually because you can harness it. Um, so that it, that's kind of my my engine fuel, uh, if you like. Hmm. Wow, it, it, you you make me quite inspired to to, to do more with my existence than I currently do <laughs> because I definitely have had moments. Dane, you know, you, I think a lot of people feel feel what I'm talking about. This kind of sense of like, oh, uh, there's there's no def, change. Def, def, you know? Definitely, and and again, I, I I do feel like this is an engineered state of being for a lot of people. I think that, for example, conspiracy theorists create a sure man of ultimate power and control and influence because it means that if you concede to a unseen power that controls everything then you can remain apathetic about what might be your personal or social responsibility to change that situation in the same way that um i think a lot of people what we describe as apathy is the fact that they may feel that um as you said, their their small effort may not have any real significant effect on what might be a problem. Um, but I'm def- I am of the exact school. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Natasha, I think that anger is a very, it can be a very healthy emotion to have in situations of apathy uh, or situations of injustice, because normally anger is what precedes revolution. Um, I, I said in a show, I said that you know, the people in when the Arab Spring didn't begin, people been like you know sitting in Parliament having some intense discourse, and someone decided to self-emulate because they're like, I don't even have enough fuel to fire to fuel my truck and be able to have a business, and this is some bullshit. I will not take it anymore. In the same way that like you know, in the French Revolution, this wasn't a result of. Uh, political intrigue and exchange of ideologies. People were starving and couldn't eat. And then Marie Antoinette was like, let them have cake. And they were like, what the fuck did she just say? And uh, <laughs> So, you know, I think sometimes that it can be effective. And then the other thing you said, Natasha, which I completely agree with is one of the ways to do it is to uh, act, act locally, think globally. So, you know, I think 
the climate the climate crisis would be an example of apathy where people are kind of like, well, if it's re- irreversible, what is the point then? You know, it's already too bad and there's nothing we can do. But it's these small incremental actions like just being conscious of your waste or observing more sustainable practices individually. Even something as small as even if you're in a hotel, making sure that you take out all of the lights. Mm. These small things all make a difference and they all contribute to the same thing. And I think apathy tends to, I think, how and I think it, it stems from... <clears throat> a sense of detachment Hmm. especially as a social species so i think when we ponder like apathy from the position of mental health i think that feeling of helplessness or pointlessness can then begin to snowball into more grave uh thoughts which might you know border on suicidal which again i don't think is a necessarily the act of somebody want to take their own life i think when you feel a certain level of apathy and detachment and powerlessness then you begin to rationalize well maybe everyone would be better off if i wasn't here and you know, kind of, and I and I feel like um, I should I should I think that um, it's apathy is yeah it's it's it's, it's a lack of connection because obviously sympathy mm. is about the fact that I connect with something that somebody's saying and it resonates with me and so that's where I'm able to understand it. That's but, really interesting because I think I felt a lot of apathy uh, when I was. <laughs> When I was on holiday in December, I went, yeah. I went to Thailand in December and I just kept looking at stuff like on my phone and just going, oh, I don't really care. <laughs> or I'm yeah. kind of, but like now I'm back, I'm kind of regenerating into something different. But there was a period of time where I was just like, yeah. Oh, well, I, think, I think a lot of people do that. Yeah. I think I think the ideological disposition of the West is a large function of that. I think a lot of people, because they can be... So in that instance, Howard, you were in a, like a paradise with your loving family, so you're able to separate yourself from the problems at home. Mm. And I think it's the same. I think that can also be subverted in the same way that people seem to show apathy towards immigrants or the asylum seeker crisis because they're kind of like, well, I don't live there and I don't have to carry my family across a dinghy. And so I am able to distract myself and observe this apathy because it's not something that affects me directly. Like, for example, I think a lot of people were like, yeah, Brexit, it'll be fine. I don't care. Like, you know, we need to get our country back until until they started seeing that there weren't food on the shelves. And now people are like, oh, it actually does have a direct effect on me. That's how it was marketed. The idea of Brexit was marketed to people as an anti-immigration campaign. So people were like, well, these people have to go, even some immigrants who voted to leave, it's like these people have to go through the same protocols and the same, overcome the same adversity as I did. As you were saying with Stephanie Yeboah, like a lot of people are like, well, how come that person's able to defy the system and, and realize their potential? And it's the same thing. People are like, well, I had to go through all these hoops and overcome this adversity. To, so this person shouldn't have it any easier. But the idea normally should be is that you make a, you find a path so that becomes the beaten path so people can follow the same trajectory. But a lot of people, I guess, still carry the trauma of said adversity. And, and what we tend to do is project and be like, well, I went through this and this is the result of, this should be the result of your aspirations. And so that person should go through the difficulty as well. When really the question should kind of be like, why does it even affect you? Or maybe another way to explain it would be people complaining about immigration affecting uh, queuing time for the NHS. Instead yeah. of asking themselves, what can I do with my life so I don't need to go to hospital? <laughs> right. But I think that there's something in what you've both said. So so how are you talking about the fact that you were looking at your phone in Thailand? And then, Dane, you talking about connection. Because I think what technology can do, it, I think technology has the power to connect, but it also has the power to disconnect. Mm-hmm. And it can make us disconnected from our environment. And that in turn can lead to apathy. Because I, I will still say, I'm, I'm so lucky. I get invited to schools all over the world, which means that I get to experience 
not only I get to travel, but also when, when I go to that area of the world, I get to hang out with the teachers that, you know, have been there for a while. So I'm not having a tourist experience. I'm having a kind of mm-hmm. experience of somebody who lives there, which is great. But my favorite place I think that I've ever been is um, I went to a British school in Kathmandu. Hmm. And the reason that I loved it so much is because you can't even listen to a podcast on your phone in Kathmandu because like the, so there's, there's guys on motor, motorbikes with chickens hanging off the back who are just like, zoom, zoom, zoom. Or the, or the, the pavements all cracked where they, where they had an earthquake. And then there are um, kind of telegraph poles hanging down at face level. So you just have to be really vigilant and you have to be present mm-hmm. and you have to pay attention to your surroundings. And I think just being in that environment meant that I was the most mindful yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have ever been. And every time I reached for my phone, which was a lot because it's a habit, I thought, Oh no, I can't because I will die if yeah. I if I look on, at my phone. On the, on the, yeah, keeps you on your keeps you on your toes, and that, and that's a really good point, Howard. I think mm. another point what it's the, the relative comfort maybe in this part of the world has also facilitated some level of apathy because, as I said, your phone can present you with an artificial reality which you can choose to kind of thrive or exist within, and you can avoid what's actually happening in the world. Because um, a lot of the time, you know, we're given bad news, and then they're like, "Well, buy some stuff," and you're like okay mm. that doesn't really sound like it's going to help things and they're like you need to buy it because everyone else says you're a piece of shit what the fuck is wrong with you and that, that's kind of that's kind of encouraged like that apathy is kind of encouraged but I think so I think yeah the way that we could address apathy would be yeah people should be in situations or we should be encouraging a disposition where people take a lot more responsibility for their own lives like I made the decision when I started doing comedy, largely due to economic reasons, you know, as mm. with people in Kathmandu, that I need to make, take more time researching my own health and addressing any autoimmune issues I may have because going to a doctor, I mean, they can advise me, but they're doing that based on the lineage of previous medical study that they've been taught as well. And they mm. may not have the time or the wherewithal or the sense of innovation to be able to find something new. But even then, that being said, if it's an autoimmune issue, if my body why can't my body not fix it itself and then not have to rely on other people and I also feel like fear is a large part of it you know a lot of people are afraid and so we need to have well people need to be honest about their fears and try not to disguise them as like political concerns or you know try to disguise them as uh, the demonization of other groups and they say what they're afraid of so for example patriarchy largely I think for a lot of men is that if women are in control then they'll just kill us and do bad stuff to us <laughs> well and, would, and you know I'm sure you've heard in Hashtag what if a woman was a president there'd be wars because women are emotional yeah what wars like there are now all the yeah. time every day everywhere <laughs> so what's the difference going to be really even mm. if that was the case and you know it's kind of like but it's given it's given yeah. an insight because it, it's it's exactly the same with, um, you know, that famous Enoch Powell's uh, speech about rivers of blood mm. and he talked about the uh, foreign men having the whip hand, right? And that's a real insight into his mindset because what he was actually saying there was, I'm scared that if white people are no longer in charge, that I will be treated as badly as white as people have treat, treated others yeah, exactly. historically. And it's exactly the same with arguments against feminism. It's, that, yeah. it's, it's men going, oh, if it's, women might treat us the way we've treated women, we can't the, allow that to happen. It's the reason for the Second Amendment in America. Mm. That's what I believe. And the 13th <laughs> Amendment as well, that if these people are all potentially 
no longer slaves, but sleeper agents for a revolution. And they might do to us what we did to them. And so everybody get a fucking gun. Because if you don't have one, <laughs> come into your house like we did with theirs and rape your wives. Because it's really funny. Yeah, because when you think about how much hysteria and, Ill- and how illogical or irrational that fear can become, you've got people who are like, keep away from our jobs and our women. But then also let's send our jobs to another, other countries. <laughs> tell our women they can't do anything and it's kind of like you know if you are telling your own women they can't do anything and then they meet another group of men who are like yes you can they're probably going to gravitate towards the men that give them those existential freedoms so well it, it it's definitely made me feel less apathetic uh having this conversation so i thank you both for indulging my question Problem uh, shared is a problem spared, Howard. Yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> going to try and make a difference this year. Well, I think we do a little bit of a difference with this show, don't we, Dane? So, Absolutely. I, yeah. I think that's always the case, especially with human beings as a social species. Just hmm. the validation of your humanity and your existence is enough for most people. I, yeah. I, I actually feel, Howard, if we took time socially to address something like apathy, the need for psychiatric help and for um, psychological, hmm. uh, psychological belief or going to therapist would go into free fall. There's so many things and so many coping mechanisms and so many aspects of the discussion between therapist and patient when you think, you know, if someone has actually cared about that person, they probably wouldn't even need to be in that chair. Or if that person was in an environment where they were able to express whatever angst or issues they would have had at the time, they wouldn't need to be in that chair. Yeah, wise wise words, wise words. And um, listeners, if you can, you know, muster up the energy and... uh, Drop us a line and tell us about how you deal with apathy. But, um, Dane, it's over to you, mate, for the final question of today's show. Absolutely. Well, I think these questions have all been very well linked. Um, And as we made our audience aware, Natasha not only does great work uh, in terms of social commentary on shows like LBC, but as I said, also actively works in schools alongside children, which I think is amazing. Um, I say that because... I'm old now, Natasha. Getting older. And by the token, it means that I know that I can't necessarily be involved like boots on the ground so far as activism and altruism all the time. And the saying is that old people give counsel and it's the young that kind of protest. So my question really is, based on your experience and what you've seen and in your discourse with young people at a lot of schools you visit, how confident are you that the next generation can handle things when we're all gone? Poor, good question. Wow, that's, yeah, a really good question. So um, I should gonna, say... Are they going to be okay? Because, like, you know, this is, and this is not... I should contextualise the question in saying, like, this is not me being like, they don't know what they're doing because I'm not of that school. Like, children have to learn to thrive and work in the world that we give them, and we're not doing a great fucking job. So, mm. But that, that being said, doesn't mean that they can't do something about it. So from your yeah. observations, who's got next? <laughs> I, I mean, the first thing I want to say is that I am also old. Um, I, I was 40 last year and I did have this thing in the back of my head that, because I've been doing this job since I was 28 and it's definitely moved from, oh, uh, you remind me of my big sister to you remind me of my auntie. And, it, and it's going to move to you remind me of my grandma. You know, I can see the trajectory that we're on. No, the cool but, auntie, though. <laughs> the cool auntie, yeah. Yeah, actually. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's... Um, I, I think the, the relationship that you have with the young people does 
change, but it doesn't become less meaningful because I, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to continue doing this job. But I think that as long as you acknowledge that actually you don't understand what it's like to be them and you don't try and be down, like there's nothing worse than an adult who, you know, is, is trying too hard. There's, and words you would, uh, like, there's words for people like that. Well, words and sentences and registers anyway. <laughs> um, but um, it's, it's, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't found that my job has become obsolete yet, which is great. Um, I, I also, I, I worry about this narrative that says, because this current um, this current cohort of teenagers are the most socially involved, the most politically aware, and the most empathetic, I think, of any generation for a long time. And there's been a lot of defense of them on that basis. There was uh, a couple of months ago, a, a head teacher did a, a speech at the Girls' Schools Association where she said can we stop calling them snowflakes? They just care. And that's yeah. something that we should be celebrating. And I agree with that. But I also am wary of that narrative that says everything's going to be okay because this next generation are better than us and they've got it because it, it's, that's another thing, you know, they've, they've already got to deal with um, house prices and climate change and the competitiveness of the job market and the trying to negotiate new technology that, human and, beings aren't and, haven't really evolved to yeah, do it. Well even a new a new paradigm of yeah. what it means to be an a member of proletariat in terms of labor and jobs because you know we come from a generation where people are like well they need to create more jobs. How? Manufacturing is becoming automated service yeah. industry is becoming automated. So these guys are having to think of new ways well essentially new ways to define their lives by because a lot of us define our lives by occupation. They're not going to have that same luxury necessarily. Yeah. Yes. And and they're going through an education system that essentially at its core hasn't changed for a hundred years. Yeah. And and yet the life that they will live at the end of that process will be radically different from a person 100 years ago. So there's all these challenges that they're trying to deal with. And there's no precedent like, you know, take the pandemic. Everybody kept saying it's unprecedented. It's unprecedented to the extent that it was like, I never want to hear that word again. But I think the reason was that <laughs> it, it, we got, we get so used to, I'm going through a challenge. I'm going to ask someone older, what did you do when this happened? You can't do that with yeah. COVID because no one alive has ever experienced a pandemic before. And, and that's very true for a lot of the challenges that young people oh, are going through. Can I just say, not, not to challenge what you're saying, because mm. I agree with all of it. There is people that have an experience with a pandemic. It's just that. SARS, you mean? SARS, no, no, I mean AIDS. It's just that because it only affected oh, yeah. continental Africans and gay people, no one else gave a fuck. Mm. That's very true. Yeah, I, I didn't think of that. I was thinking that the, the closest equivalent would be... Um, Spanish flu. Spanish maybe? flu, yeah. yeah. But you're right, yeah. Um, AIDS would be the, the nearest thing. And I know a lot of people who have HIV were really um, kind of triggered by living through COVID oh. because it reminded them of what that what they'd already been through. Mm. Um, so that's a good point. Um, I guess that's not a universal experience, so that's the yeah, thing. Which so is, which is interesting, yeah. yeah. And, and again, it's, it's, it's nice how all of our stories link because the apathy of people to the LGBT community when AIDS or HIV was ravishing that community on a global scale, the apathy for that is now, you know, coming back to haunt them because now you're mm. now you're having to do what it's like to be isolated and to be stigmatized and to be divided and you're like you have no idea it's like well some people knew what that's like because they yeah. listen to them yeah good point um yes so do i think I, I think a really important thing is to hold on to how you saw the world when you were about 
between the ages of 16 and 18. I think that's important for everyone because uh, sixth formers are, or college students are my favorite groups of people to work with because you're at an age where you're old enough that you understand how the world works, but you're young enough to want it to change. And you're not, you haven't become myopic in your thinking. So you're not worried about like, how much tax do I have to pay? Um, yeah. Or how, how much does it cost me to fill up my car necessarily? You think you tend to be thinking more globally, like how can I make things fairer for everyone? Mm -hmm. And so I actually say to young people, you know, of course your ideas are going to evolve and shift and, and they must, that's part of being a human being, but keep checking in with your 17 year old self and would they be proud of the person that you've become? So, so based on, on, that I think if they if they continue to do that, the things that I hear from them, I would say, uh, yeah, they'll be they'll be fine. You know, if they were in charge now, the world would be better. I think that's what I'm trying to say. I think I think that's well put. I think my the my uh, I guess my disposition before I was a comedian, and then when I became was able to embrace being a creative, was essentially me regressing back to being 17 again. All, all yeah. that time between then, before I started doing comedy, was a result of me trying to conform to the idea and trying to find my way to slot myself into the system. And then being able to do, un, being unable to do so is how I regress back to being 17. So mm. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree, agree with that sentiment. Yeah. That, um, you know, because I, I was thinking like, you know, Sidney Poitier died last week. Or, and so yeah, it's kind of like, you know, first guy to win an Oscar. So it's kind of like, are there now people that are working towards legacy and heritage in terms of being performative in, in, in you know, showing children through leadership that they can right. do the same thing as well. And so it's really refreshing to hear that you think that's kind of in a healthy state. Um, but it also activism is like, it's like passing a baton. That's, yes. that's the thing. Like you, you're always standing on the shoulders of giants and, mm. and I, I don't think, it, because when, when you first enter the space of campaigning, you, you always think, I've had this really brilliant idea and why aren't they just doing it? And you don't realise that there are people who have literally been fighting for it. But it, yeah. it does, it takes such a concentrated amount of energy that you do kind of burn out a little bit and, and you go, oh, here's, right, here's a new person who has the same names. Yeah. I'm passing the baton yeah. to you. And, and that's that's how the process works. And But I remember when I first started doing body image campaigning, I went to... Um, a conference and Susie Orbach was there, you know, who wrote Fat as a Feminist Issue, mm -hmm. who is just such a magnificent woman. Like I've never known anyone so small take up so much space. Like mm. she's amazing. And um, there were all of these people there going, well, I, I think we should talk about banning airbrushing. And she was just there just rolling her eyes. And I couldn't understand at the time where that response came from. And then I realized that she's been talking about those issues for 40 years i mean <laughs> i i can definitely relate it's like now being a black person and i'm going to take the risk of speaking for my community hearing non-black people be like the media misrepresents us you're like <laughs> <laughs> do they the government tells lies <gasps> the police are corrupt <gasps> <laughs> you can't trust what they say they cover things up do they now mm. So yeah. yeah, the only danger of this, though, is that this this you know, these younger generations don't know what to believe, and I think that won't mm. be the case. I, I think I think there will become some kind of I don't know the, the mistrust that has been is a weird era to be mistrusting the media as much as people do. And, and don't get me wrong, there's reasons for that, <laughs> mm. but I think knowing your you know 
trustworthy sources of what to believe, I think will will help the future generations really navigate the next steps. Right? Well, that might, be, that might be what we're in the cusp of seeing in the beginning, just referring back to Natasha's first mm. question, is that maybe we need to see the inception of a uh, genuine replacement for journalism as it exists. So maybe that's what we're looking for, Howard. Maybe we've reached the apex of the efficacy of mainstream media so far as enlightening people on global issues, and we need something else. Maybe we go back to Grios and stuff, and they they just tell us. <laughs> I think the ad- the advantage of living in the the technological era and everything being measured by algorithms is that you can effectively vote for the type of media that you would like to see more of. And there are people who are doing journalism in a way that is more innovative and less agenda driven. Um, and, and you know, it's. You know when people say say to me all the time, "I wish you had more hours on on LBC. You're such a breath of fresh air." I'm like, share my clips then. Yeah. <laughs> make, <laughs> make sure. <laughs> make sure you download the Global Player app. You listen when those Rage R forms came round. You're ticking my name because that that's what's going to ensure. I mean, not just me, but you know, other people who mm. who are coming from that perspective are going to get more airtime because it's all driven by what gets the most traction. Yeah, well, exactly. It's, it, well, I mean, well, that's that's populism, though, isn't it? Mm. So, and, and you know, that it can be a drawback that the person that's shouting the loudest or the most people that are shouting sound like they're the ones that are right, which can be very difficult in a, a democracy uh, in a democracy with mob rule. So, have you read that um, that Ashley Dotty Charles book? No, but I have, have a you, oh, You're going to send it to so me, and I'm going to be very grateful. It's so good. Uh, it's called Outrage, Why Everyone's Shouting and No One's Talking. And it's it's about the, the fact that um, we live in an outrage economy. So uh, there are people who literally make a living, like naming no names. But you can, you can think of the type of people I mean, out of saying something that they know is going to cause outrage, and then they trend for a day. I mean, sometimes you want to put across the pa- counter argument. I understand that, like, you know, particularly if it, it's saying something which is demonstrably untrue about you or, or your community, I understand that. But if you share that piece of content, then, the, you know, the algorithm doesn't know why you shared it, just that you have. Well, yeah, quality um, is quantity over quality as long as it's a spectacle. Like, to before, nowadays, you would tell me a story, Natasha, and you'd be like, it's disgusting, you don't want to know about it. And I'd be like, yeah. And your anecdote would be enough. Whereas now, people are like, look how bad this is. Look how bad this person says. And then, they, yeah, people make money from that outrage. It's like when Liam Neeson fabricated this whole story about going to beat up some black guy that supposedly <laughs> raped his girlfriend, raped his uh, friend at the time, and yeah. then was like, I was going to kill him and start a fight with any black guy, which coincided around the time he was releasing this weird quasi right-wing film when he was doing like another Taken. Because Liam Neeson, there's, at the time you're talking about in the 80s, there were about 14 people in the island, so living <laughs> in the island at the time. So you weren't going to go and fight them all. We all know this. And no one would tell that story anyway. It was basically a story where he was like, you know, getting the same kind of people that, you know, send Chuck Norris emails around to be like, yeah, he, he went and fought for that woman. I want to go see that fucking movie. He don't take no shit. That shit, that, that didn't, it didn't even happen, Liam Neeson, at all. <laughs> it's been it's been a very very good episode dane i feel like it's been a very clear thread across all three questions do you agree absolutely it's it's all very much linked and uh yeah i think a a wonderful way to start off the year natasha thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been a pleasure speaking to you thank you sincerely
Absolutely. Um, just need to ask, where can our listeners find out more about your good works? So you can find me um, on Twitter and Instagram. That's the only socials I'm on. I'm, I'm not on Facebook because it's too annoying. Not on TikTok because I'm too old. So just Twitter and Instagram, underscore Natasha Devon. Um, and you can also, if you wish to, I've written a novel. Uh, it's my, my debut um, novel. I've written nonfiction before. And um, it's... Thank you very much. And um, I'm, clapping, it's I'm clapping on the mic, Howard. I'm not sure if it, I don't want to mess up the yes. sound, but yes. <laughs> that's why I said thank congrats, you. I congratulations. congratulations. No, that's amazing. You were miring clapping. That is amazing. Um, and it's available to pre order now. And again, because of algorithms, if you pre order it, that really helps me. I don't fully understand why, but it does. And also, if you pre order it now, it will be a long time before it turns up. It's out on the 7th of July. So you'll probably forget in the interim. And then when it turns up on your Kindle or on your doorstep, it will be like a gift from yeah. your... It's like when you put money in your trousers and you forgot it was there and then you put those same jeans back on and you're like, oh my God, I should be on The Apprentice. So <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. Yeah, so it's yeah. called Toxic. Please, please pre-order it. Well, good luck with the book, eh? That's uh, exciting. It's a great Thank book and, and great to have such a great social commentator on the show. Um... I'm going to try and get my own LBC show. I love doing this stuff. I, I watch you and, and, and on there all the time. And I really wanted to ask a question about how you maintain your patience. But <laughs> I also wanted to provide you with a nice form of escapism. <laughs> so, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate yeah, that. One day. But uh, thank you so much. Um, also, as an, a recipient of an MBE, should I be saying Lady Natasha or Your Highness? I'm no. with uh, so, honorable so I, I, I wondered if you were going to ask me about this, actually, because um, I got my MBE in 2015 mm-hmm. and I rightly, I think, assessed at that point that if I if I said yes, it would open doors for me. And it did, you know, shortly after that, I was made the government's mental health star. That did not end well. Um, but, uh, you know, it got it got me around tables and, and into the rooms that I wouldn't have been, I don't think, if I didn't have a peerage. But I'm now part of a group um, called Excellence Not Empire. And it's a group of, it's mainly um, people of colour and women who have received an honour and they're campaigning to have the name changed because I never really thought about the fact that now after my name, I have member of the British Empire. That's what MBE stands for and I'm not really comfortable with that so we're kind of from the inside trying to change it so that it stands for British excellence because that's why you get it um, you know for doing something good with your life Um, so hopefully yeah I won't have to be because I am a little bit embarrassed by it (laughs) you was was already a member for more than tax you was paying (laughs) 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 thank you for coming to do the show Natasha it's been an absolute joy Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBaptweets or Instagram at DaneSnapTiste. Our guest was Natasha Devon. You can follow Natasha on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Natasha Devon. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at We Are Audio Culture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys, and remember, question everything. Hold up. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.